you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 20 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. 20 shows, Mark, who would have thought? Absolutely, 20 down and... Well, hopefully another 20 to go and maybe 20 after that Mm. again. Well, last week, you will recall, we went outside our comfort zone slightly, but only little bit slightly, I suppose. Uh, and this was beyond the bounds of the legal profession as we talked to consultant obstetrician Declan Keane and got a doctor's view on medical negligence and personal injuries litigation. And in particular, we discussed the practice of what he termed expert shopping. Mark, that was a fascinating interview, wasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It's a subject close to my heart, as you know. Yes. Um, and it was a very interesting discussion. And it has gone down a bomb with our listeners. Uh, a lot of people with a lot of views talking to me during the week, I have to say. Uh, so we were very grateful uh, to Declan for coming in. It was a really, really good interview. It was a fascinating interview. Well, this week we are slightly closer to home as we will be talking to the former chairman of the Labour Court, Kevin Duffy, whose contribution to the development of labour law in this jurisdiction has been simply quite immense. Kevin, who is a qualified barrister, and I believe a classmate of yours, Mark, I didn't realise that, wow, Uh, in the King's Inns, presided over the Labour Court as chairman from 2003 until his retirement in 2016. And we're going to talk to him about his fascinating background in the trade union movement and the lessons he learned at the cutting edge of industrial relations and employment disputes over the years. But first, we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified from the Decisis website. And we start this week by looking at a number of cases concerning criminal compensation for victims of crime. Uh, the cases in question are Bowes and Brophy versus the Criminal Injuries Compensation Tribunal. Uh, They are decisions in the High Court of Mr Justice David Holland. Uh, These are judicial review actions, Mark, and the applicants were challenging the decision by the tribunal to refuse them compensation on the basis that they had submitted claims outside the two-year limitation period. Yeah, so this, as you say, basically a new criminal injuries compensation scheme was brought in in uh, 2021. Um, And the two people in question had, uh, without question, suffered very serious um, injuries as a result of criminal uh, actions. One of them had been stabbed and the other one had received blunt wound trauma to the brain um, in in an assault. And they both claimed. But the tribunal found that their claims were out of time. And basically, the issue seems to have been that the... um, the time limit had changed such that if they had brought their actions just before, the day before the new legislation came in or the new scheme came in, they would not have been statute barred. But because of the change in the legislation um, and the introduction of the new scheme, suddenly their actions became statute barred. And um, and Mr. Justice Holland basically said that this this was not a, that there was an injustice had arisen essentially yes. from that. Okay, no, very good decision, I have to say. Mm. I think I think that's a, a very fair decision. Yeah. Uh, they weren't beaten by the clock, which is which is a yeah. good thing. Well, next to a case concerning that thorny issue of security for costs, and and these arise where effectively the party taking proceedings has to be able to assure the party being sued that they can cover that party's costs in the event that their claim is unsuccessful and that an award of costs is made against them. 
This is the case of Fanflex Limited versus Bandon Properties Limited, a decision in the High Court of Mr. Justice Brian O'Moore, and it concerns the termination of a joint venture company. The High Court granted an order that that a plaintiff provide security for costs in the sum of €670,269. Yeah. So a lot of security for costs. That's a very high uh, order. Um, and it did r- arise partly from the from the way that the application had been defended by the plaintiff. So as you say, when obviously because a because companies of their nature have limited liability, when somebody when a company brings an action, if a defendant thinks that the company will not have sufficient money to cover their costs in the event of losing the case, they can bring an application for security, which essentially means that the that the company has to put money up, have the money in court in order to cover the costs of the possibility of losing. Now, very often, and there was a kind of a rule of thumb that that you would assess what the likely costs were going to be and the courts would order security and maybe a third of that sum. Um, and that used to, But now increasingly they're kind of saying, well, why should the defendants only have security in relation to a third of the costs? And in this particular case, the defendant said, right, we don't believe that the company can, provide, can, can cover the costs. Um, so there's a presumption that the security should be made. The company then failed. The company has the option of saying, well, one of the reasons that we can't provide the security of costs, we don't have the money, is because of the wrongdoing by the defendant. But the um, the court didn't accept that. But they then went on to, to the, 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 the court then looked at what the defendant's estimate of the costs was going to be. And in this case, as you say, the estimate came to 670000 Plus can can I bit? read the quote from Mr. Justice yeah. O'Moore that you can, mm-hmm. you have on your uh, website, mm-hmm. which is fascinating, I think. He says, I have assessed the likely costs of Bandon from the bringing of the motion for security at 670,269.34, 34 cents uh, on top of, of those euro. In reaching this figure, I have taken into account the fact that a bill of costs is unlikely to be measured in the full amount initially sought. So they were looking for more. And that view is supported by some of the fees described. For example, and this is the bit that caught my attention, Mark, I do that. not think that a refresher for senior council will be measured at €6,000 per day on a party and party basis. Yeah, but I think <laughs> what was interesting in this case is also that when the plaintiff, uh, when the application had been heard and he indicated that he wanted to, um, to, 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 to award that, the plaintiff's counsel then looked to put in a further affidavit and make an application to, that, that maybe the sum should be at a lower level. And um, Mr. Justice Moore basically said, well, th- th- you had one chance to defend this application and, uh, and it's too late to put in any further affidavits. To so use very the, strict the, rule. To use the phrase favoured by Frank Clark over the years, a high court action is not a dress rehearsal. It's the first and final <laughs> night of the show, I think. Yeah. Okay, finally to a case of false imprisonment. This is the case of O'Farrell versus the Governor of Port Leisha Prison, a decision of Mr. Justice Keen Ferreter. In this case, the judge awarded the sum of 2,500 in damages to two men who claimed they had been falsely imprisoned. However, while he did make a small award, the judge did not feel that their case merited substantial damages. Yeah, so this is a 
question, uh, uh, an issue relating to two people who had been sentenced in England on what was described as terror, terrorist defences. We won't go further, further into it, to the detail, but 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 basically there was an arrangement between Britain and Ireland that whereby um, somebody who was serving a sentence in one country could apply to have the balance of the sentence served in the other country. And so that happened in this case that the um, that, that that they wanted to be returned to Ireland because they were from Ireland, um, and so they applied to be returned to Ireland. They were uh, detained in Port Leisha for from uh, to, from 2006 to 2014. But then it arose, and I think it arose in, in relation to a number of these cases, that the warrants upon which they had been detained in Ireland, having been returned, were in some way defective, and so they were released. And so they then they wanted to say, well, because we were imprisoned for eight years on foot of defective warrants, we want to be compensated for our false imprisonment. And on the face of it, that doesn't seem unreasonable to be detained in Portish sure. prison can't be pleasant for anybody, let alone for eight years on a defective warrant. However, it's not How unreasonable. How do you put a value on eight How'd years you, of a man's life? Well, this is it. But the <laughs> but the issue that arose here was, of course, the fact that they themselves had applied to be returned from England to Ireland. So if they hadn't made the application, they would have been kept for longer because they were released before the termination of their, their sentence. And so therefore, they, they hadn't the actually suffered yes. any loss. Uh, in that regard. Okay, very good. Thank you, Mark. And so, for those. And so I should so, so just say that the, the the damages were of a nominal basis. So it was yes. 2,500 to each so, person. Okay, very good. Back shortly with Kevin Duffy. Silence in the fifth court. Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio retired chairman of the Labour Court, Kevin Duffy. Kevin, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Well, delighted to have the opportunity, Peter. And there's Mark. been an emotional re- reunion here. I didn't realise oh, yourself and well, Mark are former, former classmates. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Did the King's Inns together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems yeah. like a long time ago well, now. Well, there you go. There you yeah. go. Did you ever practice? No. No, mm-hmm. no. No. Which you were in the, the, the Labour Court at that stage. I was, was that yeah. round about I had then? just gone into the Labour Court. Yes. So, yeah, I, I went into the Labour Court in 1997 and I started in the Inns in 99, I think. So you were an assistant chair beforehand, were you, Kevin? Deputy yeah. chair. Deputy chair, mm. sorry, a deputy chair. Mm. Okay, before you became chairman yeah, in 2003, six, is that right? 2003, that's right. Yeah, okay, okay, mm. all right. Um, yeah, I was six years as deputy chair. And uh, presumably qualifying as a barrister and training as a barrister, that was very helpful to you in terms oh, of your work. it was work. indeed, particularly in uh, light of the changes that were happening within the court, because I went into the court in 1997, and the only uh, jurisdiction that the court had in respect of employment rights was under the uh, 1994 Anti-Discrimination Equal Pay Act and the Employment Equality Act. Yes. Everything else was industrial relations, but uh, it started to change around that time. The, I think the first uh, additional piece of legal jurisdiction that the court got was under the Organisation of Working Time Act. Yes. Uh, which was 1997. And all of the statutes that came on in the employment sphere after that 
came to the court. And made made a huge contribution to employment law and what you could do in your role mm. as chairman of the Labour Court. Mm. We're going to talk a lot about your role as a chairman of the Labour Court mm. and the huge contribution you've made to employment law in this jurisdiction. But can we go all the way back, mm. Kevin? Let's go back to the start. Mm. You, you started out as a bricklayer, I believe. That's right. Will you tell That's us all right. about that? Well, um, I started out, as you said, as an apprentice bricklayer. It was a very important trade and it was a... I think a six or seven year apprenticeship it required in order to Wow, that was that was an apprenticeship and a half, wasn't it? Well, most apprenticeships were six or seven years, which had nothing to do with the length of time that it took to learn a trade. It was to do with the length of time that you need to progress from being effectively a child, because a lot of people started at fourteen or fifteen years of age and you became an adult at twenty one, so the period in between was an apprenticeship. It really had nothing to do with the length of time. Apprenticeships have reduced significantly since then. But no, I I followed, it was a long family tradition. My father was a bricklayer, my grandfather was a bricklayer. My father had six brothers, five or six brothers, I can't remember which, uh, all of whom were bricklayers. Wow. And I follow. So there's large portions of Dublin City, or maybe beyond, <laughs> that you can look at and say, we did that? Lots of them have been pulled down <laughs> since. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think it had anything to do with the quality of the buildings. But um, yes, it's. Uh, I've often walked around the city and looked at gable ends and buildings and Okay. Remembered. So as well as putting as, the bricks in place. Absolutely. And as well as doing all that building work, you also became interested in the trade union movement. Yeah, well I became a trade union official in the old building workers trade union uh in nineteen seventy three. I'd been involved with the union for a number of years before that, but I became an official in nineteen uh seventy three. And I worked in the union for the following fifteen years and then I moved to the Irish Congress of Trade Unions where I became an Assistant General Secretary. So what trade union were you with initially? The building, 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 building Batu, was it? It's, it's no Batu. Batu was an amalgam, amalgamation of two unions. Um, but um, I never actually worked in Batu. I, I was responsible for setting up the amalgamation, but... Uh, before it happened, I left and, and went to work for Congress. Okay. And what was that like? What was it like working for Congress? Congress was... Extreme. Who was there at that stage? Peter Cassells? Peter Cassells was yeah. the General Secretary. Peter had just come in as General Secretary. And it was decided at the time that they needed to beef up the industrial relations side of of Congress. That was the time of social partnership and all of that. And... Um, I was I was implied and given responsibility for industrial relations, trade union organisation, uh, and employment law, which was quite interesting because that was a time when there was quite a lot of um, employment legislation coming forward, um, mainly uh, because of developments the European in Europe, Union, yeah. the European Union, and, and uh, I think it's very interesting because if you go back to when I started as a union official in 1973. There wasn't any employment legislation. There was the Redundancy Payments Act of uh, 1967. Um, there was a number of old conditions of employment acts going back to the 1930s, which had applied 
mainly in, in, in respect to the distributive trade in shops and the like, but didn't have any broad application. And in 1973, uh, there was the minimum notice in terms of Employment Act. And that was, that was it. Yes. So working as a trade union official in those days, that's all you had to know So about. what was it, industrial relations disputes then? Was yeah, that well, you see, at that time, and for quite a while afterwards, uh, any rights that people had in employment or any obligations that employers had were derived from collective agreements, collective okay. bargaining. And there was quite a high incidence of collective bargaining in Ireland at that time. It's, it's gone way down now. But um, that was the uh, main source of, of employment rights. Okay. And when did the nod come then to sit on the Labour Court? Uh, 1997. Okay. 1997. And how does that happen? Kevin, because we know there's a representative from the employers, generally an IBAC person, yeah, yeah, and then obviously the trade union movement, and then you have a chairperson mm. between, between the, the well, two. Well, in of them. those days, it's it's a, it's changed now, particularly under the Workplace Relations Act of 2015. But in those days, it was generally uh, it was a, a, a ministerial appointment, but there was it was generally by consensus between Congress and. Um, what's now IBEC. Yes. Uh, where you would simply you'd, you'd be, be nominated, you'd, basically. You'd but. simply be asked where you, you'd, if you expressed an interest. And there would be discussions between the relevant department and Congress and IBEC. And out of that, um, somebody would emerge. It would happen to be me. And who was the, the chair at the time? Finbar Flood? Finbar, was well, no, Evelyn Owens. Okay. Evelyn Owens was the chair and when I uh, joined in 1997. Finbar became chair, I think, two years after that. Okay. Now, and again, there was a, a practice where people would uh, come from either an employer background and uh, or from a trade union background. Evelyn Owens' background would have been in the trade union movement. Though she was primarily a, a politician before her appointment. Uh, Evelyn was a, a member of uh, the Senate for many years, but she had come from the what was then the Local Government and Public Services Union. Okay. And uh, she, she was the chair at that stage. And Finbar, who had been vice president of... of the FIE, which is the forerunner of OIBEC, right, uh, had been ap- appointed as deputy chair uh, some years previously, and it was generally expected that Finbar would succeed. Is that Evelyn. the way it goes? That's the so way the it trade went union there. It doesn't, steps out yeah, and yeah. The employer it, it generally, steps in again. Generally, not not all the time, but generally, no. generally. Okay, and there's kind of an element of fairness in that, I suppose, Kevin. Isn't well, it? it maintains a balance, and yes. that that was the idea behind it, uh, and that's that's. Basically, okay. so, uh, so you got into the chair about. in mm. 2003 mm. and you served for what, 30, into the maths, 13 years, was it? Until 2016. So it was, a, wow. it was 19 years in total. Yeah. 19 years, yeah, okay. Yes. But 13, 13 years as the main as, man. As, as, as chair. As chair, right? we'll as call chair. it chair. Okay. Uh, yeah. and, and just to overall, before we get into it, mm. I mean, was it an enjoyable experience? Kevin? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was very lucky in, in many respects because... Um, Congress was extremely enjoyable. I loved Congress. It was challenging. I was involved in all sorts of activities that I found very satisfying. Um, 
and the opportunity to go to the court came along and it was a wonderful experience, particularly in light of the evolution of the court over that time. And um, there was very significant evolution, culminating, of course, in the 2015 Act, which effectively gave uh, the Labour Court the the status as the sole appellate uh, tribunal in in, uh, employment matters. Um, And, you know, as I said, when I I started in 1997, um, about 90% of the work was industrial relations. By the time I left... It was all statutory entitlements. It was was about 70-30 in favour of employment rights. I'm interested in what you said that when you started in the union movement that that the that people's rights derived largely from collective bargaining. So in those days there was no Organisation of Working Time Act. There was no Unfair Dismissals mm. Act. There was mm. no um, Employment Equality Act. So, mm. so well, basically, yeah, yeah. But, but so, so the effect was that that basically it was all contractual. Uh, rights deriving from collective bargaining. So, mm. would that would it be fair to say that then, with the introduction of all this legislation, that the role of the union movement has been kind of reduced? Uh, well, the role but, of the trade union movement mm. has diminished significantly over time mm. uh, for a variety of reasons. Mm. I'm not sure that's necessarily at the at the forefront sure. of it, but um, it's trade union density, not just in mm. Ireland but everywhere. Mm has diminished significantly. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, you hear mm. various figures as to what the trade union density in Ireland now is. Some people would put it as low as 13% in the private sector. Yeah. It's much higher, of course, in the public sector for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but in those days, trade union density was way up at mm. 60% of the workforce. So it was... I suppose to describe it as contractual, as obviously as lawyers, that's what the, the term we would use, but it was an ag- a, a collective agreements that mm. people were expected to abide by. But it also meant then that people who weren't in unionised industries had effectively no rights in terms of holiday... Uh, well, there, or, there, were, there was a Holiday Employees Act going right. back to 1961, I should have mentioned that, and there was a, a Holiday Employees Act on... 1973, um, but they were they were enforceable through the district court, right. not, not through the employment or the labour court or the employment tribunals. Um, but um, the because you had this problem with non-unionised employments or mm. where collective bargaining didn't take place, you had provisions under the 1946 Industrial Relations Act, principally in relation to joint labour committees, which were intended to uh, regulate areas that couldn't be regulated by um, collective agreements because I think the whole thrust of the 1946 legislation was that the primary mode of determining pay and conditions of employment should be collective bargaining. It was very heavily sort of, um, uh, it was directed towards facilitating and encouraging collective bargaining. And were we following, I mean, I just if, if that was 1940s legislation, were we basically adopting the sort of UK uh, model at that stage or did well, we have a different... Well, no, I think the... the, the, the the, the labour relations system in Ireland obviously was derived from the British system. Yeah. You know, we inherited it. But the, um, and you did have um, things called trade boards, which operated in the UK and operated in Ireland going back to um, pre-independence days. 
But the Labour Court was a unique institution. There was no parallel, nor has there ever been a, a parallel in the UK. They have mm-hmm. a body called ACAS, but that's a, a conciliation body. It's not a, an adjudicative body. Um, so the, the Labour Court was a pretty uh, um, novel uh, um, initiative that was taken Brought by in John in the Right. Um, we, we, and it was primarily came about um, because in the uh, during the the war, uh, the emergencies yeah. we had it. Uh, there were wage standstill orders, so people couldn't claim, and, and strikes were effectively prohibited. Yeah. Uh, all of that was coming to an end after the war. I think there was a concern that there could be very considerable industrial unrest, and the. Labour Court and the various systems that were put in place around the Labour Court were intended to find another way of dealing with industrial disputes apart from industrial action. No, didn't mean that there wasn't industrial action, there was, but the Labour Court was unique in the sense that it was a body that was established to give a third view on the merits of a dispute. Otherwise... Do do, do you think, I mean, this has been really interesting, Kevin, Mm. and the history is is fascinating. And obviously, as you say, traditionally representation for workers, for example, and Mm. employees that would have gone before the Labour Court was provided by their trade union. Mm. Now, that has all changed really over the years, Mm. hasn't it? As you say, Mm. you know, trade union membership has gone down. Yeah. uh, And, you know, the trade union movement is not as prominent as it it once was in Mm. Irish society. Mm. Mm. Um, But do you think the Labour Court has moved with the times? Obviously, when you came in, there was the EAT in existence at Mm. the time. You had rights commissioners who were the first instance Mm. place and then they would appeal their decisions Mm. to the Mm. Labour Court. Mm. Then we got the 2015 Workplace Relations Commission Mm. Act, which basically created the Workplace Relations Commission and then the one appellate court, Mm. which is the Labour Court. Mm. But uh, so that that has been the evolution of Mm. of the mechanisms for Mm. for redress Mm. under the statutory Mm. provisions that Mm. are there for employees. But does the system work? I mean, if it's generally legal representatives now that attend the mm. Labour Court, there's mm. no costs because that was mm. traditionally mm. individuals would act for themselves and mm. be represented mm. by the trade mm. union. This is a very, very long question, Kevin. Sorry mm. about that. But, <laughs> but where are we at the I'll moment? Give you a long is, well, good, 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 good. <laughs> I mean, is it is it still is is the is the system that applies there still fit for purpose then? Oh, well, the system has evolved. I mean, as I was saying to you earlier on, it has moved from being an industrial relations body. If you look at, the again, the 1946 Act, the mandate for the Labour Court is to give its opinion on the merits of a dispute and uh, on the basis upon which it should be resolved. So there there were no rules other than common sense rules to try and find an accommodation between parties who were in dispute. Uh, And it was directed at looking at something that both sides could live with. So it it wasn't based on rights. We often talk in industrial relations terms about disputes of interest where you don't have a right to something, but you have an interest in getting it. And the Labour Court was primarily designed around resolving uh, disputes of interest, right? The disputes of interest still arise, right? And it's, the, the Labour Court has a very important function in dealing with them uh, so as to avoid industrial conflict. But most disputes now are dispute, uh, arise from 
issues of right. And of course the court has evolved and it has had to evolve since it started being given jurisdiction for these type of disputes. And, you know, the, the culmination was in the 2015 Act. But before that, as I said, the court uh, dealt with, the, with equality matters. Um, then the Organisational Work and Time Act. That was followed with the uh, National Minimum Wage Act, where the court had jurisdiction. Uh, the Protection of Employees Fixed Term Work Act and the Protection of Employees Part-Time Work Act. And they were all, you know, they, they were all uh, assigned to the court. The court was the adjudicative body in, the, in those matters. And it had to change because, you know, if you were dealing with an industrial relations dispute and the court, as everybody knows, acts by division, where you have three people, right? It wasn't a case where of simply saying, what's fair? It was a question of establish the facts, yes. identify mm. the legal but principles I suppose, I suppose, and apply them. So, uh, of course, and I accept that, and, and, you know, there is all this legislation which mm. gives employees rights. Mm. But in order to pursue those rights, mm. employees have to go before the Labour Court. Mm. And where traditionally they might have been represented by trade unions, mm. and trade unions with great expertise mm. and were able to help them, now they have to rely on legal representation. And they're generally up against employers... And this is a bugbear, mm. I think, that, that exists mm. amongst mm. legal practitioners yeah, in this area. Yeah, yeah. They're up against employers who have the resources to mm. employ legal teams mm. and fight cases, yeah. whereas employees often don't. And it is the case that often awards are very small, very minimal. Mm. So somebody whose rights are vindicated, really, there's no vindication at all because they end up with very little, Kevin. Well, they don't, if, particularly if they have to pay legal fees. Yes. But um, I think... Certainly in my experience, there are there were some very good union officials appearing before the court in employment rights cases who knew the law, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't know any other aspect of the law, they wouldn't deal, but they knew employment rights and they were very good in that respect. Of course, there were people who appeared unrepresented and the court, I think, has always had a, a, a tradition of trying as far as possible to assist unrepresented parties. Now, I used to often say to people, look, I can help you. I can't help you to make your case, but I can help you to present. Yes, fair right? enough. And the court will, as I think would adjudication officers, try as best they can to assist an unrepresented party in presenting the case. Because most of these cases, as as I think we all know, turn on facts. Yes. Right? The legal principles are fairly clear. Uh, the, the, the real contest is around establishing the facts. No, people can be at a disadvantage in, in, in that respect. Uh, and in that context, there has been a, a debate for as long as I can remember about whether there should be a jurisdiction to award costs. And where do you come down on that? On balance against it, and really? I'll tell you why. why. Well, the main reason is that if there's a jurisdiction to award costs, costs, costs can be awarded to you or against you. And I think it would deter a lot of workers, particularly on, on, on cases perhaps that aren't going to attract very high awards, right, from taking on the hazard of, of losing and having an award of costs made against them. 
Yes. And that's, you know, at unbalance, right? Okay. I and think I mean, that, would, is, that is a concern. It would a lot of people in bringing cases. And that's why a lot of cases don't go beyond uh, the uh, the statutory uh, appeals mechanism into the courts. And particularly in the days when there was a, a, a de novo appeal uh, a, a into the circuit court in unfair dismissals cases, it was often used as a tactic mm. by employers yes. to run a, an appeal into the circuit court uh, and invariably get a settlement perhaps at less than the case was worth because the employee couldn't take on the risk. Okay, so what about what about a potential solution to that then would be the American-style system where you don't have a cost scenario, but the award is of such magnitude <laughs> that people can pay their costs. I mean, is that a solution? Is that the well, approach well, that we should take? The, well, the, as, I mean, you know, as you know, there's a limit on, on what you can do, and that's probably, probably constitutionally necessary. Yes, um, that you have to. You, 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 there's often cases where you'd love to be in a position to make a high award, but it, it is limited by statute. And I think the reason why it's limited by statute is to ensure that um, the court is exercising limited judicial functions. Now, all of this came out in, in Lewinsky, if I pronounce yes, it properly. Yes, the famous case. The famous that, case, yeah. It cha- didn't change everything, but it was significant. It was significant. Well, it was it was significant in that it changed procedures. But yes. in what respect? It, 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 it caused hearings at first instance to be in public. public. And which is a good thing. Which is a good thing. Which is a good thing. Uh, the reasons why I think the legislation was designed as it was, uh, but um, it's now in public, that's clear, uh, and evidence has to be given or note, and that's, that's clear also. But it puts, I suppose, the argument that has been floating around for a long time, that all of this sort of um, specialist tribunals to deal with a whole branch of the law uh, was going beyond what was constitutionally permissible. So it, 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 at least is, it put that to bed. Yes. Yeah. Can, I, can I just bring you back to, to the, the comment you made about to, to, uh, you, you, you distinguished between what you call disputes of interest and effectively disputes of rights or disputes mm. of entitlement. Mm. And so if I understand rightly, what you're saying is that industrial relations disputes, you're basically, you're talking about the the, the, the various different interests and trying mm. to come to a kind of third mm. way or an mm. objective. Mm. To, and then you've got your disputes of entitlement where you've basically got to apply the law as mm. closely as you can. And you've obviously sat over both types of dispute. Yes. And, yes. and when you're... Does it take a different type of skill to to, to determine one rather does. than another? It does. And it do, does. You, do you think um, it, it, are disputes of of interest still happening to the oh, same yeah. extent? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But, and it, and the same those, people are sitting over both. Yeah. Mm. And it's the disputes of interest mm. that most people hear about. Right? Sure. I mean, if you have, for example, a dispute in public transport, right? Mm. It potentially affects. Mm. Thousands of people yeah. right, who are discommoded by the fact that the buses aren't running or trains aren't running or whatever, right? Uh, and there's, a, there's always an imperative about trying to find a way of resolving those disputes yeah. and getting the buses back on the road or whatever, right? A dispute of right invariably affects one person. 
Yeah. Very important and, to that person. And how come, it affects one person. How come in these disputes of interest, Kevin, they can only be resolved at six o'clock in the morning? Uh, Do you have to stay up all night? Probably. Probably. <laughs> uh, it's a long tradition. That is not... <laughs> a long tradition. No, so we wouldn't meet at three o'clock do, and we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, eventually yeah, do a deal yeah, in 15 hours' to, time. Yeah. Once the horse is still alive, you have to keep flogging it. <laughs> Can I just ask you, Kevin, just with your vast experience and mm. genuinely, I mean, the contribution you made mm. when you were chairing the Labour mm. Court and since, and I know you've done loads of different things since, like public pay commissions and all those sort of things that you've chaired, but lacunae within employment law and, and statutory rights, is there, any, is there any gaps that you found when you were presiding over cases that you felt weren't covered by the legislation that's out there? Well, most issues that arise are covered now. Um, the extent of the coverage is another matter, and there are some lacunae in some of the statutes, and, and obviously they have to be uh, looked at from time to time. Um, and some of them are highlighted from time to time in, in cases before the superior courts. Yes. And one that comes to mind is a case that uh, it became well-known as uh, the Nanonagel and Daly. Yes. Right? And one of the things that arose there was that there is, under the directive, an obligation to provide reasonable accommodation. Right? But this is an employment equality case. An employment and equality. And this was a yeah. person with disability. Yes, yes. yes. And uh, the whole thing turned on the extent of an employer's obligation to provide reasonable accommodation. But what emerged was that while the Act prescribes that there should be reasonable accommodation, it's, it doesn't ha it's not a, a standalone cause of action. If it doesn't happen, for example, um, a, a failure to provide reasonable accommodation doesn't come within the definition of discrimination, such as, for example, harassment is deemed to be discrimination for the purpose of the uh, 1998 Act as amended. But... The, and, and that point was made by the Supreme Court. Perhaps okay. a lot of people didn't latch on to it, but yes, certainly okay. Mr Justice McMenamin right. emphasised that point that there wasn't a, a standalone right uh, to uh, uh, reasonable accommodation. It's, if you like, a defence to a defence. So yes. if the employer pleads that the person can't do the job, they can counterplead. Well, I could if I was given reasonable accommodation. Okay. Can, can I jump in with one mm. further question mm. uh, before we? Because this has been brilliant, and we were unfortunately we're, we're we're pushed for time, so we have to wrap it up, Kevin. Protected disclosures. Yes. that's been a whole new phenomenon, mm. and it was mm. kind of coming in as you mm. were going out the door. What do you make of that? Well, it was it, it hadn't actually come in. Um, okay, is it two thousand and eighteen? Is that act? The 2014, but it probably wasn't implemented. It probably wasn't yet. implemented. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I went in 2016. I didn't have a case under that. What I have you could have had a bit of fun with that. Just, just, no, sorry, just for the benefit of our listeners who may not instinctively know what a protective disclosure is, uh, this yeah. is the issue of whistleblowers, isn't yeah. it? So this is yeah. where somebody effectively mm. says to somebody else, there is bad practice going on mm. in my mm. workplace mm. and I think something mm. should be done mm. about mm. it. And somebody who then gets fired for... Yeah. making that kind yeah. of disclosure. Yeah. Isn't that, that, yeah. That's the yeah. issue, isn't Well, it? two things about it. Firstly, um, it, it, it develops a concept that was already there called penalisation 
or victimization as it's described under some, some statutes. So the concept of penalization or victimization was well established under, and I dealt with I, umpteen cases, uh, principally under the uh, uh, Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act. There yes. was a lot of um, penalization cases. So the principle and that's the was, legal test that still yeah, applies. It's yeah. the same legal test that applies. I have dealt with in a private capacity since retirement. I've been asked to investigate some protected disclosures, uh, complaints. Yes. Um, and look, um, in some instances, right, not all, it is a very important piece of legislation. I and mean, we've, we've seen lots of examples of, you know, the benefit that can be derived by society generally from people who have the good conscience to disclose wrongdoing, right? And they should be protected. A lot of cases are taken where the disclosure couldn't reasonably be construed as having any public interest dimension. And of course, the the courts have said that there doesn't really need to be a public interest element. I think that's been looked at in, in yeah. a revision of the legislation. Um, but generally speaking, I think, you know, while there are difficulties, as there always are with new legislation, right, uh, the principle that people who disclose wrongdoing should be protected, I think, is... Is, is a really good one. Is okay. a good one. Kevin, they are literally freaking out <laughs> behind the window here. So I better I better wrap this up. And we can't let you go without the big question, Mark. What's the big question? Big question, Kevin, for our listeners who are generally people mm. in the legal profession or people who aspire yeah. to be in members of the legal profession. Have you a book or film or other work of art you'd like to recommend to them? Um, I'm not, I'm not a, a movie buff. Uh, I do read. Um, and there are... Uh, there are three books that I I, I, I think are, are, are worth reading. One that I keep dipping into, right, is uh, Joyce and the Law. I don't know if you've ever come That's across this. Adrian, 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 Adrian Hardy. Yeah. Okay. Apart from it being uh, extremely easy to read, right, uh, it makes sense of, I mean, apart from being a lawyer of, of considerable repute and a jurist of considerable repute, Adrian Hardin was also a Joycean scholar. Yes. Right? And he managed to make sense of Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses. Whatever about Ulysses, Finnegan's Wake seems to be beyond most people, certainly beyond me, to make sense of. But he makes sense of it and dips in and out of the various... Uh, legal cases, obviously, in their time, uh, that feature in, e- in either Ulysses. And it's a very entertaining... Very good. So did, did Joyce have a good handle on the law? Uh, he did. Well, he, 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 he dipped into various cases, criminal cases, cases in tort, and uh, he, he mentions them as opposed to going into any analysis of them and seemed to understand what the issues were. Um, but it's in such uh, obscure language. I seem to remember Adrian Hardiman gave life to the whole issue of poor Paddy Dignam's life insurance yes, policy. Absolutely. Wasn't that the issue? That's right, <laughs> yeah. And that turned into a discussion on the, the law around insurance and contract, right? And that's that's one. There's another one which is, is I, that wouldn't generally be known, but it's, worth, it's, a, it's a good read, particularly for those of us who've gone 
in and out of King's Inns. It's called A Night at the Inns by Henry Murphy, who's a, yes. I think, a practice at UD. Yeah, absolutely. Esteemed barrister, a series of really short stories, fictional, but all around the dining at the inns and what happened before, well, mainly what happened afterwards. It's, it's mm. worth reading. Another one which um, I got my hands on many years ago, and again, dip in and out of, very old one, but The Old Monster Circuit. Oh, okay. Yes. That's the Morris Healy. Morris, mm-hmm. Morris Healy, yeah. And that's, that's actually very, again, well-written book, which is all about life at the bar a hundred and something years ago. Right, and it's it's um, it's a very good, entertaining read. Um, it also, I suppose, um, it gives you a good indication of how the uh, the practice of the uh, well, at law has changed, and more particularly, the practice in the courts have changed. Yes, of course, because some of the stories that he relates um, in by today's standards sound as if they were. A slight, slightly above kangaroo courts. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the well, Kevin, Mark asked you earlier, did you ever practice as a barrister? Mm. You know, that's still available to you. You can ah, come on know. down. You yeah. can come on down, you know, Absolutely. and give it, give it a lash. There you yeah. go. Uh, Kevin Duffy, this has been fascinating. I have really enjoyed this interview. Thank you very much for coming in and being a guest on The Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. And that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, retired chairman of the Labour Court, Kevin Duffy, for coming in and talking to us about his fascinating career. Uh, and I would also like to say a huge thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios and sound engineer Lee Brennan for recording this show and doing such a wonderful job. If you have any comments or any legal stories you'd like to raise with us, please contact us on our website or on LinkedIn. Uh, and Mark, we're asking people, as always, to share our show. Absolutely. LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Instagram, or wherever you f- feel that uh, members of the legal community are likely to hear about the show or anybody else who might be interested. Please tell them about it, you know. So from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.